Hey everybody, it's Jason. Welcome or welcome back to the Mosaic Church Podcast. At the end of this podcast, please take a moment to connect with us on social media. It's a great place to learn more and to see what's happening at Mosaic. Most importantly, hope the following message encourages and inspires you to take a new step on your faith journey. Enjoy. Just focus on the football, Jankowski. My coach's words pierce the air from the sideline. Just watch the ball into your hands, he continued. I nodded in silent agreement as I stood staring at yet another football laying helplessly at my feet, another casualty of my stone hands. I knew coach was right. I needed to focus on the football. And yet I also knew that it was a losing battle because I could feel in my mind at that moment frenetically focused on everything but the task at hand. The year was 1993, and it was my inaugural season on the high school football field. Our daily practice had reached its normal conclusion, a series of team conditioning drills. That day's final drill was called catch or run, and the premise was simple. Every player on the team would go out for a pass, and for every drop ball, the team had to run laps. Unfortunately, I had already dropped five footballs at that point by the time my coach was yelling at me. Like I already said, I knew he was right, but the damage had already been done. At that moment, all I could focus on was the consistent chorus of jeers emulating from my teammates on the sideline, the ghost of previous fumbles and the prospect of yet another dropped pass and the inevitable consequence of additional conditioning. I knew I needed to focus on the football, but at that moment, all I could see was my external circumstances. Oddly enough, all these years later, not much has changed. Not only can I still not catch a football to save my life, but I still catch myself unintended fixating on my immediate surroundings instead of what matters most. In essence, as a Christ follower, my attention has the unfortunate tendency to wander towards my external circumstances instead of staying fixed on Jesus. Much like that fateful day on the football field back in 1993, taking my eye off the ball leads to outcomes that are less than desirable for my life, but not only for myself, oftentimes for those who are in my sphere of influence as well. Take, for example, the fact that we recently moved to North Carolina to start a church. And that has no doubt been an incredible and crazy adventure. However, it also presents numerous challenges that threaten to divert our focus at any given moment. I can say with confidence in the two months since we have left Wisconsin that we have faced more difficulties in external circumstances that have vied for our attention in that time. And the reality is, is that when I give in to the siren calls of my external circumstances and I get my focus off of Christ, I become entangled in seasons of fear of loneliness and of doubt. 
the reality is, is that sometimes I do find myself concentrating more on my external circumstances than on my faith in Jesus. Now, I have to imagine that I'm probably not the only one who struggles with that. I believe that each of us has probably experienced or is experiencing times when we've momentarily lost focus, fixating on the ever-shifting external circumstances around us, oftentimes to the detriment of our own spiritual well-being. And these moments, whatever form or shape they come in, can cast a long shadow over the entirety of our lives, including even our faith in Christ oftentimes threatening to put us in places of isolation or self-reliance. Losing our sight of what truly matters most in life is a common temptation that we all face, especially though, too, when life becomes difficult or trying. But what's even more disquieting than that is the unfortunate truth that many of us who profess faith in Christ have also regrettably resigned our faith to the capriciousness of our circumstances. You say, what does that mean? It simply means this, that our faith tends to ebb and flow as our life ebbs and flows. Much like that day on the football field when I had simply resigned myself to dropping a sixth pass, our experiences have painted a picture and etched an image of a faith in our lives that falters under duress. Or we possess a faith that we like to cling to when life is good, but becomes far too easily disposable when the road gets hard or rocky. The problem is that this perspective on faith stands in direct contradiction to the clear teachings of Scripture. Yes, we will face trials in this life. Jesus said as much in John 16, 33. Being believers does not mean that we are excluded from the difficulties of this life. However, Jesus also talked about, and Scripture also portrays a faith that is triumphant in the face of adversity, that is not easily distracted or overwhelmed by our external circumstances. Jesus told his followers after he told them that, yes, in this life you're going to face troubles, he encouraged them to have a faith that was resilient by saying that to take heart, for I have overcome the world. Elsewhere, the Apostle John asserted that every child of God conquers by faith. And the Apostle Paul boldly proclaimed in Romans 8.37 that we, we who are followers of Jesus are more than conquerors through him who loved us. The truth is, is that our faith in Jesus is designed to triumph in adversity, to overcome our external circumstances, not retreat from them. And so the tension that I want to invite us to wrestle with this morning is this. Not only to recognize or acknowledge our own tendency to be distracted and to lose sight of Christ during challenging circumstances, but perhaps, and even most importantly, to acknowledge that perhaps we've settled for a faith that is feckless or weak in the midst of our external circumstances. And this should prompt a crucial question for us this morning, which is true. The Bible's description of a believer's faith 
or our lived experiences? In other words, does the faith that we possess in Christ overshadow and surpass everything that we encounter in this life? Or is it the other way around? Fortunately, the Bible is not silent on this issue. In fact, in Revelation 3, we encounter a group of believers who will give us some guidance on what it looks like to ground our faith in the present. And so if you have your Bibles or your Bible apps, I encourage you to open to Revelation chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 7. And I invite you to explore together what it is specifically that these believers did to ground their faith in the moment. It's interesting to note that so far in our exploration of the seven churches featured in the book of Revelation, we haven't encountered a single church that in one way or another had not lost its focus. Each of them faced significant distractions that diverted their faith from Christ onto their external circumstances. For one of the churches, it was backsliding. For another, it was poverty, false teaching, and yet another was running into spiritual apathy. Each had lost sight of what matters most in the moment. However, a notable exception arises with the introduction of the Church of Philadelphia in chapter 3. In this case, we don't read that Jesus had any complaints about their actions, something that could hardly be said about the other churches. And as we're about to discover, the faith of these believers remained focused on Christ, even in the face of difficult circumstances, including religious persecution. In essence, these ancient believers from the church in Philadelphia epitomize the faith that we read about so often in the scriptures. And so let's delve into Jesus' address to this group of believers, beginning in Revelation 3, verse 7. It reads as follows. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia, these are the words of him who is holy and true who holds the key of David. What he opens, no man can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are a synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars. I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will keep you from that hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world and test the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming out of heaven from my God. And I will write on them a new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, obviously, there is a lot that is going on in this text. We read Jesus talking about keys and doors. 
a synagogue of Satan and even a city descending from the clouds. It's a complex passage with rich prophetic and even theological implications, one in which we could spend weeks uncovering. However, for the purpose of our discussion today, I want to encourage us to remain focused. We want to center our focus squarely on the steadfast faith of these Philadelphian believers. Specifically, we're interested in uncovering the motivating factors that underpinned their faith, making it resilient from distractions and disposability. Consequently, we might be tempted to conclude when we encounter texts like this in the Bible that this was somehow a gathering of super Christians and that their faith was on a higher level of enlightenment than that of our own. In other words, we tend to think that they were the ancient equivalent to a modern, modern uh, ancient Billy Graham or a Mother Teresa compared to our modern day Joel Osteen. Now, that's some highbrow Christian humor there. And if you didn't catch that reference, I encourage you to talk to Pastor Jason or Kurt after service and they'll explain it to you. But nonetheless, I digress. We have these notions that they were somehow superhuman spirituality. But when we jump into the text, those notions quickly fade because verse 8 tells us very clearly that these were believers who possessed little strength. This means that far from being super Christians, they were just ordinary people like you and like me who had somehow possessed a faith that transcended their circumstances. The truth is that should come as really encouraging news to all who have embraced the idea of a faith that falters under duress. If the faith of these ordinary believers in Philadelphia could overcome and not be distracted by things as dubious as even religious persecution, what justification do we have to have a faith that's any less? If these ancient believers had a faith that was not overshadowed or distracted by their circumstances, then indeed there is hope for us to have a faith like that as well. Given their limited strength, which Jesus testifies about, it becomes important to inquire of the source of their unwavering faith that was exhibited by these believers. If their faith wasn't based on a superior spirituality, surely it must have been anchored in something bigger than themselves and even their circumstances. And indeed, it was. For these ancient believers, their faith was grounded in the present moment, safeguarded from distraction and even disposability, because their faith was firmly focused on the future. Their faith was firmly focused on the future. And now I recognize that, that that's a strange concept for many of us today who might be hearing this, primarily because we live in such a fast-paced world. Our connection to our electric devices, phones, and computers leaves little room for contemplation beyond our immediate surroundings. Every day, almost moment by moment, we are bombarded by emails that need to be responded to, reports that need to be printed, bills that need to be paid, and breaking news that demands our immediate attention. It's no wonder then that so many of us, inside and outside of the church, 
struggle to focus on anything beyond our external circumstances. So allow me to further clarify my point about the future-focused faith of these Philadelphian believers. First and foremost, the faith of the Philadelphian believers was rooted in the present moment because of their forward focus on the all-surpassing supremacy and authority of Christ Jesus. And this attention to Christ's authority not only extended to their current circumstances, but also and even most importantly to the anticipation of what lay ahead in the age to come. And we glean some of this insight from Jesus' words in Revelation 3, verse 7, which reads as follows. These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. Keys serve as a potent symbol of authority, don't they? I mean, consider for a moment that when I hold the key to my house, a privilege dependent on whether or not my wife is mad at me or not, but when I hold that key, I also wield the authority of who gets to enter and exit through the front door of my home. And this aligns well with the authority uh, that has been invested in Jesus, although on a much grander and more universal scale. Jesus himself attests to this authority that has been given to him. In Matthew 28, he declares this, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. If we were to elaborate more on this concept, we would do well to draw a parallel from the Old Testament, where we find that there was actually a literal key of David. And this key was laid on the shoulders of royal attendants within the king's court as a symbol of the authority granted to them to both act and speak on behalf of the king. And for these Philadelphian believers, as well as for us today, this should have profound implications. Because in the present, Christ, being the sole possessor of the key of David, wields exclusive authority to offer salvation to all humanity through himself and through himself alone. For, this, for the Philadelphian believers who were Gentiles, who their persecutors, the Jewish religious leaders, told them that they were outside of God's salvation plans. The authority that Christ possessed as the sole possessor of the key of David meant that they were not defined by their external circumstances, but rather that Christ had the final word on who was able to enter through the front door of salvation. That means for us too that when we face difficulty in this life, when our external circumstances threaten to overwhelm and swallow us, leading us to places where perhaps we might question whether or not Jesus is actually in control, we can come back to a place and say, no, my Lord is the possessor of the key of David. He holds sole authority. And no matter what is going on around me, I know that he has granted me entrance into his heaven. But it doesn't stop there. Revelation 3, 7 also hints at a future prophetic authority that is linked directly to Jesus. Specifically, it alludes to an Old Testament prophecy in the book of Isaiah about the coming Messiah. Isaiah 9, 6-7 says this about the authority that this Messiah will have. 
It says his government will and peace will be eternal. He will reign from David's throne, upholding justice and righteousness forever. While Jesus currently holds the spiritual authority over salvation, the day is swiftly approaching, church, when his authority will not only just be spiritual, but it will be absolute and total over the entire dominion of creation. In fact, Revelation tells us that there is a day approaching when Jesus will literally return to earth to establish a physical and literal government by which peace and justice will radiate for all eternity. And this was the perspective of the believers at Philadelphia. It's what helped to ground their faith in the moment. They grasped that their challenges, though difficult, were still only transient. And their focus was fixed on the impending reality of Jesus' future authority. They believed that no matter what injustice was perpetrated against them, no matter what injustices they encountered in the world around them, that King Jesus was coming back and that one day he would set right all that was wrong. I think it's remarkable then how we, myself included, so often lose sight of the all-encompassing authority of Christ, both now as well as in the future especially when life becomes challenging or more difficult. In those moments, our faith tends to falter because our focus narrows. We tend to see only ourselves in the moment or our external circumstances. Now, don't get what I'm saying here. I'm not saying that when we bump into things that hurt or things that are difficult, that we don't grieve or we don't wrestle when life gets hard. We do and we should. However, when we fail to see the greater reality of Christ's authority, it undermines the foundation upon which our faith was always intended to rest. Instead, so many of us, we tend to look to ourselves as the central focus in those moments. We look to others as the central focus in those moments. We pursue secular ideologies. We pursue all manner of things that ultimately lack any power or true authority to bring about change in our lives. Church, it is only through Christ, the sole possessor of the key of David, who holds final and ultimate authority over our circumstances, both now in the present as well as in the future. And I believe that when we begin to forward focus our faith on the supremacy of Christ's authority, it begins to ground our faith in the moment. Secondly, the Philadelphian believers had a faith that was grounded in the present because of their forward focus on Christ's imminent return. And this sense of imminence permeated not only just their faith, but it saturated every aspect of their lives. And Revelation 3.11 attests to their perspective, stating this, I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. And as I was thinking about this, that perspective this week, it reminded me of a time when uh, Don and I had decided to visit Disney World last year. 
And I can tell you from the moment we purchased our tickets, every subsequent day was filtered through the lens of Mickey Mouse shaped glasses. I mean, we spent hours of meticulous planning, daydreaming about the experiences that we anticipated ha having. Uh, we would also coordinate our daily outfits and enthusiastically share with anyone who would listen and even some who wouldn't. The imminency of our visit to the Magic Kingdom consumed every facet of our lives. And likewise, the Philadelphia church was captivated by the prospect of Christ's imminent return. And this anticipation didn't just infuse their faith with hope in the moment, despite whatever external circumstances were going around on around them, but it also helped to galvanize their faith into action. And when we look at Revelation 3, we see that this action included them not renouncing the name of Christ in the face of religious persecution, or and also that they persevered patiently through all things. But there's something else. Jesus also praises their faith, which led to obedience to his word. Now, the scripture is silent on specifics of what that might have entailed, but we can assume likely, at least in part, that that obedience included following Jesus' command given in Matthew 28 to proclaim the good news of the gospel to the ends of the earth and to make disciples in every nation. The ancient believers' unwavering faith in Christ's imminent return likely inspired their spread of the gospel message. In fact, many theologians actually postulate that the door which Christ refers to that no one can shut refers to the door into neighboring nations in which the gospel was flooding into. These believers had a faith that was focused on the imminency of Christ's return. And when you live with a faith-filled focus on the certainty of Jesus' return to the throne in the future, you're certainly much more likely and inclined to heed his commands in the present. When you know you're going to Disney World, you tend to live like it. And I think a significant factor in the decline of evangelistic efforts, as well as disciple-making, that has plagued the church in America is largely due to the result of a lack of perspective by believers on the imminent return of King Jesus. It's difficult to envision any aspect of our lives that would not be affected by such a faith. Indeed, if our daily perspective overflowed with an anticipation of Christ's soon return, I believe that we would naturally be compelled to proclaim the gospel to our neighbors, and wherever we encountered lostness, we would emphasize more diligently with the brokenness in our cities. And we'd be much more likely to come alongside and disciple other believers, all in the name of heralding the return of our glorious King. You see, church, our faith finds its grounding in the present when we shift our focus to the imminent return of Jesus. Finally, the faith of the Philadelphian believers was firmly rooted in the present, driven by their focus on the eternal rewards awaiting them in Christ. 
And this is something that I struggle with, and I think so many of us in the church today struggle with, especially believers in America. The Philadelphian believers maintained a clear perspective of the fleeting nature of material possessions, all while fully being convinced and believing in the enduring riches of heaven. And Jesus' concluding words to the church of Philadelphia in verse 12, he underscores their resolute commitment. He reads, it reads as follows. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. For those of you who are close to me, my profound love for Star Wars is probably not a secret. Over the course of more than three decades of fandom, I have amassed a veritable, veritable treasure trove of Star Wars memorabilia. And amidst all those different knickknacks and Star Wars doodads, the crown jewel of my collection is a replica lightsaber that sits proudly in a shelf on my office. Or at least it did until last week when I dropped it on a hardwood floor. And the blade of that lightsaber, which once shone forth so brightly red, is now lifeless, and it no longer emits that iconic lightsaber sound. Sadly, my most prized Star Wars possession has become nothing more than an expensive paperweight. It pains the heart and the wallet, unfortunately. But such is the fate of all our earthly tre treasures, be it Star Wars memorabilia, money, clothes, cars, or homes. Every worldly possession is fleeting, destined to either deteriorate, end up in someone else's hands, or laid to waste in some scrap heap. As the old saying goes, he who dies with the most toys still dies. And in Revelation 3.12, we see that Jesus praises the Philadelphian believers for their unwavering faith, which was focused and prioritized on the eternal treasures over worldly possessions. Their focus was on an eternal treasure that was completely unbreakable, was impervious to theft or loss or the claims of others, regardless of what was happening in their circumstances around them. Whether rich or poor, strong or weak, thriving or struggling, they, like all who profess faith in Christ, clung to the promise of the eternal reward of dwelling for eternity in God's majestic and marvelous presence. Now, this is something that we don't often talk about when it comes to heaven. Oftentimes when you hear believers talk about heaven, you'll hear things like, there's a mansions waiting for us, or we are going to inherit a crown. And while that is certainly real and true, we miss perhaps the greatest inheritance of our eternal reward in Christ. The fact that we will spend all eternity in God's marvelous presence. In fact, if we were to actually just flip ahead a few chapters in the book of Revelation to Revelation chapter 21, will catch but a small glimpse of what this reality in God's presence will look like. Revelation chapter 21, verse 3 through 4 says this. Look, God's home is now among his people. 
He will live with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them. And here's what we need to listen to. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will be no more death, sorrow, crying, or pain. All these things gone forever. Man, this was the the forward focus perspective that served to help anchor the Philadelphians' believers' faith in the present. And I believe, at least in part, it should be a cornerstone of our faith as well. Because the truth is, is that when we invest excessive attention in our worldly possessions, when we're distracted by the pursuit of worldly possessions, we run the risk of possessing a faith that it easily crumbles or disappears, especially when those temporal possessions have the ability to just vanish from our hands. I think every one of us could probably admit or attest to the stark reality that jobs are sometimes lost. Our health can deteriorate. Cars rust, clothes tear and fade, and yes, even replica lightsabers break. And when we become so consumed with the pursuit of material possessions, much like the author of Ecclesiastes says, it's akin to chasing after the wind. It's something that we reach for but are never fully able to grab. However, as believers, when we emulate the faith of the Philadelphian believers by forward focus looking toward the imminency of Christ's return, his all-surpassing authority, and the riches that await us in heaven, our faith becomes grounded in the present. Now I realize, on paper, that sounds really good. Grounding our faith in the present by looking forward to the future seems straightforward enough, doesn't it? It's not unlike the advice that my football coach gave me all those years ago. Nick, just focus on the football and nothing else. However, the problem was is that I still had to go out and run those routes. And I still had to mentally fight through all the different distractions that were vying for my attention. Likewise, Maintaining a future-focused faith seems very easy in theory, but the true test emerges when we have to navigate and wade into life's tumultuous waters. So how can we effectively begin to put into practice a future-focused faith that was exemplified by these ordinary believers in the Church of Philadelphia? There's a lot of things that I could suggest this morning, but I think the easiest step is to begin with a straightforward daily prayer. And the prayer sounds like this. Begin each morning by simply saying, Jesus, guide me to center my focus today on what truly matters. Your supremacy over all things, your imminent return, and the promise of eternal riches in your presence. Now, I want you actually to repeat that out loud with me. And be warned, I have installed super special microphones in that auditorium. So I'll be able to hear all the way from North Carolina, whether you're actually saying it out loud. So let's pray this prayer together. Jesus, 
Guide me to center my focus today on what truly matters. Your supremacy over all things, your imminent return, and the promise of eternal riches in your presence. I bet that felt kind of weird, huh? The reality is, is that if we're going to start to pray this prayer, we need to be comfortable with feeling a little bit awkward at times. Because as we've already noted, we live in a fast-paced culture that rarely encourages us, this is beyond the tyranny of the moment, to focus on anything other than the immediate, let alone to actually carve out time and space in our days to focus our reality on the eternal perspective of Christ. Nevertheless, church, if we desire to be a church that possesses a faith that is not easily distracted, that is not easily overwhelmed or disposable, we must begin by taking small steps, albeit sometimes awkward steps, towards shifting our focus off of our external circumstances and onto the eternal realities of our Lord and Savior, Jesus. And I believe that when we do that, that when we begin to cry out each morning and humbly acknowledge, Jesus, I have a tendency to look at things that are not as worthy as you. And when we cry out to the one who promises to give us strength to endure throughout all time, I believe that over days and weeks and months that as we pray that prayer, we'll find that we begin to take steps into a world of faith that much more closely resembles that which we see in the Bible. The truth is, church, that as we direct our faith toward the future, we will find that it is grounded in the present. Once again, thank you so much for listening. If you live in Southeast Wisconsin, we'd love to connect with you at our weekend gathering. For service time, directions, and to learn more about our vision to ignite a movement of love that transforms our community and the world, Visit us at mosaicwi.com.